0: It's good to gather together here this morning for a number of weeks. We have been taking our time to work through uh, the book of Kings, particularly second of Kings as it relates to uh, the life of um, Elisha. And today is the last uh, message on um, Elisha. I want to read the whole of second Kings 13 because it's the context within which Elisha lives. It's a context that describes wars and comings and goings and death and uh, God in various ways. And uh, so it helps to get the whole context of uh, Elisha, Elisha's last few days here on earth to uh, understand them a little better. So if you have your Bibles, you can follow along, Second Kings chapter 13. In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 17 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from them. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them continually into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, then Jehoahaz sought the favor of the Lord, and the Lord listened to him. For he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Syria oppressed them. Therefore the Lord gave Israel a savior, so that they escaped from the hand of the Syrians, and the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin, but walked in them. And the Asheroth also remained in Samaria. For there was not left to Jehoahaz an army of more than 50 horsemen and 10 chariots and 10,000 footmen. For the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like dust at threshing. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz and all that he did and his might, are they not written in the book of Chronicles and of kings of Israel? So Jehoahaz slept with his fathers and they buried him in Samaria. And Joash, his son, reigned in his place. In the 30, 37th year of Joash, the king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 16 years. He also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all of the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did and the might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, Are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat on his throne. And Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash king of Israel went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And he said, open the window eastward. And he opened it. And Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. For you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. Then he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. So Elisha died, and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as the man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Now Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them. And he turned towards them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them out from his presence until now. When Hazael, king of Syria, died, Ben-Hadad, son of the king, became king in his place. Then Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again from Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities that he had taken from Jehoahaz, his father in the war. Three times Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. Father, thank you for this word. On the surface of it, it may just seem to be a lot of comings and goings and a lot of names and a lot of fighting and a lot of death. But it's also your word to us, and therefore it's meant to help us and to guide us and to encourage us. May that be so. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I wrestled with this text, I realized there is a lot being said here, and uh, we could go through it verse by verse, or rather we could go through it rather thematically. And so I have chosen to go through it thematically. And really focus on three things. Uh, Focus on prayer, focus on death, and focus on hope. And uh, we'll just look at various portions of the scripture to illustrate uh, those things as we go through them. Um, The first question that I asked as I went through this was, why pray? And that was a question that um, was answered as I was lying in bed early one morning thinking about this text and wrestling through my own time of prayer. It's not that I always pray uh, in bed, but this particular morning I was up earlier than normal, and so I just spent the first little time before I actually got out of bed praying. I was praying for concerns in my family, uh, just as I pray for my kids and my grandkids and things that they were wrestling with going through in my head. I was praying for my wife. I was praying for some of you, I was praying about the wars and the difficulties that are in this world and the various uh, issues that I think our leaders are facing, which are massive. And I was praying about my own self, things that I wrestle with and uh, things that um, were on my heart. And uh, somewhere in my time of prayer, as I was uh, thinking through these things and talking to the Lord, I, I just wrestled with just the question, why do I pray? Um, I don't know if you ever ask yourself that question, but I needed to ask myself that question. Paul, why do you pray? And I think one of the things that came to the surface fairly quickly was I pray because I'm absolutely powerless. All these things that I had rehearsed in in my head and the things that I was praying for, for my family and for you and for the world were things that I have absolutely no ability to change any of them. I don't have the power to change a person's heart. I don't have a power to to get rid of a leader. I don't have a power to uh, provide a job, all these sorts of things. But then I was reminded that I am a child of a God who does have that power. I'm a child of a God who is real, and therefore that changes everything. And it certainly changes everything about the way I pray, pray. I reminded myself of Psalm 116, that I pray because um, God hears and answers prayer. That's what the psalmist says, I love you, Lord, because you hear and answer prayer. And so all of these uh, came to my head and were were sort of whirling around because I had been spending the last week or so reading through this scripture and um, realizing that God is a powerful, mighty God. And I think that's another reason why I pray, because of God. Uh, I, I I don't know him well. I hope I'm coming to know him. One day I will know him much better. But just a number of things that popped out on my text, uh, this text reminded me of then why I pray. Well, I pray because God disciplines his people. Sometimes we are the recipients of that discipline. It says there that God was angry, or the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. That's a strong statement, but it's a It's a statement that that suggests that God cares about the direction of my life, that God cares about the things that I do. He, He cares about the affections of my heart, and He is not happy when I stray from Him and I go my own way. And the Bible is full of texts that remind us again and again that God disciplines those that He loves. And so sometimes when I am going through difficulties in my life, I will ask, God, why am I going through this? Is there something that you're trying to teach me? Is there some way that I've strayed from you? Because I know that God's love for me is expressed in many ways, but one of the ways his love for me is expressed is through discipline. And so I pray, God, be merciful to me. God, guide me out of this waywardness back into your right path. May your rod and your staff comfort me. I pray, though, as I've stated already the obvious, because God hears. Isn't that why we pray? Like, we we believe that God hears. That's what we read in verse 4, which is such an encouragement. Then Jehoahaz sought the favor of the Lord, and the Lord listened to him. That's an astounding sentence right there. The Lord listened to him. We don't just pray to the air. We don't just pray to something hanging on our wall. We don't pray to an idol. We don't pray to a bank account. We don't pray because of our own strength. We pray to a God who hears us and listens to us. He might not always do exactly what we ask, but we know that he hears us. And so that's why I pray, because God listens and he hears what I have to say. And he does this even while Jehoahaz is a bull worshiper. we we were reminded he did evil in the sight of the Lord, that he followed in the sons of Jeroboam. What did the sins of Jeroboam, what were those? He created two bulls and he told the people, these are your gods. I don't fully understand it, but in the midst of Jehoah's sinning, he cried out to the Lord and the Lord listened to him. I pray because God is able to do what I'm unable to do. In verse five, it says in response to Jehoaz's prayer that the Lord gave Israel a savior. Remember, he's angry with them. They were in tough. Jehoaz prayed to the Lord, God, you need to help us. You need to save us. And what does God do? He gave them a savior. We don't really know who that savior is. There's things that have been, uh, uh, things that have been suggested. That's not the point. The point is that God saved them. This is what God is able to do in your life and in my life. He's able to do that in the lives of our kids. He's able to do that in in this world, in the countries, in the turmoil. God is able to deliver people from their troubles and their difficulties. I pray because God knows what's going on in this world and in my life. You notice verse four, it says there that the Lord listened to him for he saw the oppression of Israel. It's the same sort of, uh, reference that he had when Moses comes before the Lord and the people of Israel are subject to Egyptian slavery and they were so bruised and up, beaten up and oppressed that they couldn't even believe that God would care for them. But it says that God looked down and saw the oppression of Israel. I believe that with all of my heart, that God sees my oppression. He sees your oppression. You might not always think that God knows, but it's amazing what God sees from his throne says, God sits on his throne and looks upon all the inhabitants of the earth. And so I pray because God has an awareness that is, that is beyond my imagination. But I know that when I'm in trouble, God sees that trouble. And so I pray because God looks down on his people. I pray because God is the type of God he is. Notice what it says in verse 23 of chapter 13. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion towards them. And he turned towards them. Is that the God that you pray to? Are you scared of him? Do you think that he is just going to smack you on the side of the head when you come into his presence? Do you think he doesn't give a rip about you? This is wonderful. He is merciful and he is compassionate and he will turn his face towards you. That's why I pray. I'm not perfect. I come in the presence of God with all kinds of stuff. And if there was standards that I had to meet in order to have an audience with God and be accepted by God, I would be hooped. But I come into the presence of God on the coattails of Christ. And therefore, I have an audience with God and he is merciful and compassionate and turns his face towards me. I pray because God is eternal. Elisha died, but God was still there. You see that Elisha died, but God still granted Israel victory uh, three times over Syria. We might die, but our God doesn't die. He's the eternal God. Uh, A little bit later down in the text, he says he answered them because of his covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is the God of history. God is the God of eternity. And so he has a perspective and he sees things and knows things that I will never know. And he has a plan and he's working all of that stuff out. And so I pray in faith and in confidence in the eternal reality of God that his power is not limited for a specific time and place. I pray because God will keep his word. We see that in a number of places here. One is when uh, Elisha tells Joash to whack the ground and he hits it three times and he says, God will give you victory over the Syrian army three times. Well, we read that at the very end of the chapter that God delivered Syria into the hands of the king three times. God keeps his word. And why does God continue to be faithful to Israel? Because he made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God cannot turn back on his word. And so I pray because I trust God's word. There's no more powerful tool that you can use in your prayer life than the word of God. To open your Bible and to pray the truths of God, to open your Bible and rely on the character of God to guide and direct your prayer, to open your Bible and find the promises of God and say, God, I claim this promise because God will always be faithful to his word. It's fascinating to me as I reflected on the praying of particularly Jehoahaz in the first part of chapter 13 from verses 2 to verse 7, the the prayer of um, Jehoash is bookended by his evil. It's amazing to me that here is this man who does evil all of his life. Here is this man that is committed to worshiping bulls. And yet in the middle of that, there's this Comment made about the fact that Jehoahaz finds himself in a bind and he calls out to the Lord and the Lord answers him. That's not a justification for you and I to go out and sin willy nilly and then pray and God will help us. It's just a reminder of the breadth of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God and, and, and the fact that he hears and answers prayer. So why pray? Because God is a God of salvation and because of his character and his word. What about death? You say, Paul, what about death? where do you get death from? Well, if you were to go back, um, I've done this in both of my Bibles, uh, at least my study Bibles, five funerals are mentioned in this chapter. Five of them. Death is on the pages of this particular chapter. And so I think that if death is on the pages of this chapter, then maybe there's something that we ought to think about death and we ought to rehearse in our, our, our minds about death and that we ought not to look the other way when, when we're confronted with death, either our death or somebody else's death or a death that might be in the world around us. And I think one of the most important things that we need to remember is there is a time to die. Uh, four of the deaths are simply they died and were buried. But with Elisha, it says when Elisha was about to die with the, or when when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness with which he was going to die, there will be a cause for our death, an external material cause for our death. We need to wrestle with that fact. We have to wrestle with our mortality. I don't know if you ever think about this. I don't know if you think about your own death. Solomon tells us very clearly in a number of places, there is a time to be born and there is a time to die. He would say in one place, it's better to go to a house of mourning than it is to go to a house of revelry. Why is that? Because a house of mourning is a house of soberness, is a house of reality. It's a house where we are confronted with what will happen to us one day. As opposed to partying and and drinking and all the things that go with revelry where we ignore the realities of life. Moses wrote an entire psalm about death. Psalm 90. It's worth reading and thinking through. Um, The writer of Hebrews tells us that we all have a date on God's calendar, a death date. We have an appointment with death. It says it is appointed unto man or woman once to die and then the resurrection. We know this to be true, but sometimes we don't want to think about it. Sometimes we're paralyzed by it. Sometimes we live in utter fear of it. And I think one of the great disciplines of the Christian life in particular is learning how to live in light of death. Learning how to live the the fullest that we can live, even though we know that one day we're going to die. To work at understanding what Moses means when he says, teach us to number our days. Jonathan Edwards in one place wrote one of his resolutions is to live with all my might while I do live. We ought not to be paralyzed by death so that we don't do anything. That we think, well, no point in starting that, no point in doing that, no, no, no point in, in being involved in that because I'm going to die one day. What a terrible way to live. Live with gusto until the day God calls you home there's a legitimate worry that's created by death. Some more worry about it more than others. But you notice how when um, Joash comes to Elisha in verse 14, it says there now, when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Do you understand what he's doing here, what's going on in his head? He's thinking, what am I going to do? I'm not going to have Elisha in my back pocket anymore. When I run into trouble, who's going to save me? When I get into difficulty, who's going to deliver me? Who's going to be my go-to prophet? Even though I have uh, a whole bunch of other religions in my back pocket, which I call on when I need to, he wanted to have Elisha in his back pocket as well. He was a one-man fighting machine. It's the same thing that was stated when Elijah was about to die. And they recognized that Elisha was God's one-man army to defeat the armies that came against Israel. There was this real sense of concern that what am I going to do? How am I going to survive? How am I going to make it? And we all have those concerns when people that we love are facing death or when they die. Death will always come like a thief. It'll never come when we expect it or when we want it. But God will carry us through. God will sustain us. He is the eternal God. There's a bit of relief for the living sometimes when people die. I say this really carefully. But Proverbs 11.10 says, When the righteous prosper, the city exalts. But when the wicked perish, there are shouts of joy. At the very end of the chapter, Hazael, king of Syria, died, and his son became king in his place. Do you think there was not rejoicing in Israel when Hazael died? He had inflicted punishment after punishment and oppression after oppression on the people of Israel. I know we need to be very careful in rejoicing over the death of anyone, but there is a a sense of relief when The tyranny of evil is destroyed by death. I don't know if you ever sit back and think about the reason for death. Do you ever say to yourself, self, why do I die? Self, why do people die? I think the answer to that question is probably the second most important thing that you can answer about death. It's to answer that question. Do you know that there's not a single death certificate in this world that I'm aware of that ever had cause of death, sin? I think that matters, loved ones. Because when we know what the cause of our death will be, we can deal with it. We can face it. We can figure out how to wrap our heads around it. The Bible says very clearly, the wages of sin is death. Well, the penultimate reason why we die might be a car accident or an illness of some kind, heart attack. But the ultimate reason that we die is because of sin. And so it behoves us then to wrestle with the reality of sin. Is there anything that can be done about it? Where does it come from? Can I rid myself of it? Does sin have the last word in my life? Another question that I asked about death as I read through this is what matters at death? I don't know if you work this through. This is not this is not meant to be morbid. I hope it's not morbid. This is just instructional for us. But what matters at death? This text reminds us in a couple places of what matters at death. When you reach the point of death, and when somebody is writing your obituary, what will your obituary say? And what should your obituary say? And what's the main thing that matters in life? Well, the main thing that matters in life is not any of our material accomplishments. It really doesn't matter at all if you sold a gazillion cars or you built a number of houses or, or you, you, you had the most amount of clothes in your closet or you had all these. Doesn't, the material stuff isn't what measures our life. Our accomplishments are not the sum total of what really matters in our life. The most important summary of a life is a spiritual summary. The Bible is really clear on that kind of things. And twice we see it in this particular text. And when Kings dies, it said they did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's what characterized their living. Is that's what characterizes our living is our relationship to the living God. Is our life characterized by a life that's lived in obedience to that God or is it characterized in a life that is lived in disobedience to that God? This is the point made in the life of Jehoahash. You, or you see in verses 10 to 13, there's four verses given to summarize his life. 16 years of his reign, And it really comes down to this. He also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he didn't depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. But he walked in them. Now, the rest of his life, in other words, this is what really important, the rest of his life, you can read over here. But this is the really important stuff about this particular king. But then you have the arrow episode, which is an episode in his life, which is recorded about him after he's already dead and gone. He can be disposed of in four sentences, four, four verses. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed in the footsteps of Jeroboam, 16 years of his life. But one episode in his life is recorded that summarizes his life from a spiritual perspective. Perspective. One incident gives gets more words than those four verses in verses ten to thirteen. It's a text that makes a value judgment on how this individual responded to God's word, and that is more significant than all of the achievements and honors of his life. You, you get it from verse fourteen all the way down to nineteen. All of those verses talk about. How he responded to the Word of God in life. And it would seem that he had little care for the Word of God, little confidence in the Word of God. It was a take it or leave it attitude. He was less than enthusiastic when uh, Elisha had been very clear to him the victory of God is in the arrows of God. Now take these arrows and smash the ground. He, boop, boop, boop. As it, was a, wah, 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 wah. it was a characteristic of his life. He didn't really give a rip about the Word of God. So what matters at death is how we lived our life. I think there's one more. Yeah, one more. Death is not the end either. Do you know that, loved ones? Death is not the end. We do live in a world which is characterized by um, naturalism, which suggests that at the end of our life, we just die and go into nothingness. I think worse than nothingness would be to come back as a cricket. Cricket. or a snake or something like that. I heard that, oh, I better, no. I started it, so I gotta finish it. In North America, they ask people about their dreams and there's two things that more people dream about in North America than anything else. One is snakes and the other is losing their teeth. <laughs> Which which I found fascinating because losing your teeth is associated with aging and mortality. And I uh, found that fascinating. I don't know why I mentioned that here. Um, other than death is not the end. And how do we know that? How do we get a glimpse of that from this particular text? Well, when they're burying this unnamed Israelite soldier, they have to finish the job in a hurry, and rather than finish it in his own grave, they chuck him into the grave of Elisha. He touches their bone, and poof, he comes back to life. So death is not the end. So death's grip... Death is real. I, I think we have to face it. But you know that death has been defeated, right? You know that there is life after death, Right? You know that Jesus has taken the sting out of death. You know that Jesus has conquered death. You know that we need not live in fear of death. You know that the cause of your death has been dealt with and that if you would put your trust in Jesus Christ, he would release you from the grip of sin. Raise you to life and you could live evermore with him. The third thing is hope. A little bit about prayer, a little bit about death. Why hope? I think there's a lot of reason for hope that's recorded in this text. Um, Just some things that rose to the surface. For me, I've already mentioned prayer. I I, I think to to, to believe in prayer, that's hope. Because you have the ear of the living God. God. You have the ear of the eternal God. When all else is lost, when you are crushed, when you are, when you are under it, when you are oppressed, if you still have breath, you can pray. That is hope, loved ones. And it's not a hopelessness. You pray to the living God. That's amazing. So we have hope because we have a God that we can pray to. We have hope because sin does not have to have the last word in our lives. Sin is the cause of our death, but it doesn't have to have the last word in our lives. We have hope because death is not the end. I, I think that is incredible meaning to life, incredible direction and purpose to life. It, 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 there's, there's a charging that we get when we realize that God has intended us to live forever and ever. In fact, we're created in the image of God who is himself eternal. and so it makes sense that we are eternal. This funeral story reminds us of that hope. This is one of the most funniest stories in all of the Bible, I think. And uh, you, you, you got to just come back and just reflect on the humor of this in some ways. Is you've got this Israelite uh, army fella. We don't know his name. And he probably was killed in war or maybe he was died of Um, some injury that he received, or maybe he just fell off the city wall. We don't know, but he's being carried by his buddies to the cemetery, and they get to the cemetery, and they start digging his grave, and all of a sudden, they look over their shoulders, and they see this marauding Band of Moab's on the horizon, Moabites, and they're thinking, "Oh no, we're in trouble. We're not. We don't have time to finish the job in our own grave. There's, a, there's a tomb. Let's whip open the door and chuck him in, and let's head back for the city." And so they whip open Elisha's tomb. It just would have been a tomb that had a covering on it. They push it aside. They chuck the body in, and they start hoofing it back to the city. Uh, this is how I picture it. They're hoofing it back to the city, and all of a sudden they look beside them, and there's their buddy running beside him, maybe passing him, trying to get back to their city. As his body had hit the bones of Elisha, poof, he stands up again. That's a funny story, but it's also a story that packs a punch. Because it's a reminder to us that we have hope after death. That there is life. It's an illustration of that. You might say, well, why is that story in the Bible? Well, I think in the context, particularly of the historical times, it's meant to be an encouragement to Jehoash. You say, well, why is it an encouragement to him? What's the encouragement to him? Well, the man of God might be dead, Elisha, but the word of God or the God of that man was not dead. The word that Elisha spoke might no longer come from his lips because he was dead. But the word that he spoke while he was alive still has power because of the living God. And so Elisha had said, listen, you whack the ground with these arrows and you will get victory. And all of a sudden Elisha's death and you might be thinking, oh man, Elisha's dead. What am I going to do? But you read at the end of the chapter in 25 that three times Syria was given victory. I think this must have been an incredible encouragement to him that the God of Elisha was not dead and that Elisha's word would continue because it was the word of God. I think probably it would have been encouragement for the people in exile who read this particular book. It was, remember, Kings was probably put together or edited while the people of Israel were in exile. And they they must have wondered, is there any hope for us Is there any chance that we will live again? Is there any chance that we will get back to uh, Israel, our our homeland? And they would read a story like this, and they would say, yes, there is power in God. Yes, there is power in his word. Yes, he will give us life again. I think there's one other way to think about this story, too, is um, Elisha was mentored by Elijah. Elisha was said to receive a double portion of Elisha's gifts. Remember, Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. He was walking along um, one day, and uh, all of a sudden this whirlwind comes along and sucks uh, Elijah up, and he goes up into heaven. And they look for his body for three days, and they can't find him. It's this miraculous departure. He goes up alive into heaven. Well, how do you beat that? if that's the way to put it. I don't know if that's the best way to put it. But so here uh, Elisha dies, and um, what does God do there? Well, he rebukes death of the average no-name Israelite soldier. And it's as if, uh, one guy says, it's as if the last word of both Elijah and Elisha is, don't think death has dominion over you. It doesn't. God has the power over death. And he may take many of us up alive when Christ comes back, and that would be a great way to go. Or if we die, we will be caught up together. Uh, We will be raised by Jesus in his power, and we will be given that new life that is ours. And so there's hope because death is not the end. There is hope because of God who delivers God delivered the people of Israel from the Syrians. It's amazing what you read, and I find it amazing, that Jehoash sought the favor of the Lord. The Lord listened to him, saw their oppression, and gave Israel a savior. The Syrians were brutal. But we have a more brutal Taskmaster than even the Syrians. There is an enemy that is more brutal in our world than any old king or any new power broker that may be alive today, and it's sin. Sin has a firm grip on every human being. Its leader is hateful, and wants only our destruction. We are unable to deliver ourselves from sin's power, from sin's grip. There's no human power that can ever come to our aid. It's only when you actually see what you're up against, when you face your sin, that you realize the hopelessness of your situation. And that's when we seek the Lord. And the Lord is gracious and delivers us. That's the message of the Bible, isn't it? That God has said a final deliverer. That final deliverer is Jesus Christ. The amazing thing is that God is able to deliver us from the dominion of Satan and transfer us into his kingdom. That God is able to deliver us from darkness and bring us into his marvelous light. And he's able to do that through the deliverer that he has sent, the deliverer, capital D, which is Jesus Christ. There's no such thing as self-rescue. I hope we realize that. I hope you realize that. There's no thing that you can do yourself that will ever deliver you from the Satan or from the grip of sin. It constricts. it, It binds. It oppresses. It has It has the law on its side, and it ultimately will kill. But God has sent a deliverer, Christ, who can free us from its curse, who can free us from its penalty, who can free us from its sin. And and it's not rooted in anything in us. We simply cry out to God, and God in his compassion, God in his mercy, God in his grace, sends Christ to save us. It's an extraordinary reality. Our salvation rests not in anything we can give but only and fully in God's character and God's grace and God's mercy and his deliverer, Jesus Christ. And our salvation is guaranteed forever through Jesus Christ, through the covenant that he has established in his blood. Oh, I am so thankful that God is a covenant-keeping God. He is faithful to his word. He is faithful to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them a family that outnumbers the stars and the sands of the sea. He is faithful to the sacrifice and the death of Christ and the covenant that he established in his blood that no one will ever snatch us out of his hands and we have eternal redemption through Jesus Christ. Why do God's people still exist today? Because of his covenant, because of his word because of what Christ has done for us. So I hope you know that your salvation is only a whisper away. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can pay. All you need to do is say, God, save me. And he will save you. There's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved, but the name of Jesus. The Bible says, look to Jesus And be saved and you will escape from the power of death. Who would think that an Old Testament chapter could offer us so much hope today? It's God's word, that's why. Father, we come to you today thankful for the way you have woven redemption through the pages of Scripture that it always, always takes us back to you and your Christ. Father, I thank you for not giving up on us. I thank you for being faithful. I thank you for your great power which is at work. I thank you for being gracious and merciful and compassionate towards us so much so that you sent us a deliverer. I thank you, Father, that our prayer matters. I thank you that you hear it. I thank you, Father, that death does not have the last word in our life. I thank you, Father, for the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus. May your people be encouraged in prayer. May your people learn to live life fully, even in the face of death. And may your people learn to revel in the hope that is ours through Christ Jesus.